Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to talk about loading in. <laughs> loading out uh, and, and answer your questions about that. And also, I'm um, just hopefully take some of the knowledge that we've had about doing this, uh, some of the scars, and uh, and hopefully save you some of the trouble. So uh, so we'll talk about that in the second hour. Uh, but the first hour is open to open to your questions. So go ahead and throw those questions into Makana right now and make sure to vote on those questions so that we know which ones you want us to answer first. So let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Robert, what do we have? Uh, we start with Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. Alex, any update on the Atomos Zato Connect passing UVC controls with an Insta360 link? Uh, no, no, no update yet. I um, asked Monday and I'll have it done. I, I, the week's been a little busy and it's right here. It's, I have it. This is it. Um, I want to test it. And <laughs> I have to admit, those links sat in front of me for months and then I moved them I can't figure out where I put them. So I, 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 I would love to have a better excuse than I thought of trying to give you a better excuse, but the reality is I moved them and I, and they're not in where I keep cameras. I, I must've done something with them. I was in a rush to, um, I had to go down to LA last week. And I think that in the swirl of that, I put them somewhere where I didn't, where they didn't belong. And now I can't figure out where they are. They're all four of them are sitting together, but I'll find them over the weekend and test this, uh, this little guy um, over the weekend. So ask on Monday and uh, we'll, uh, we'll sort that out for you. Next question. From Andy Korkendorfer, Vieira, Florida. He asks, I have long used hang 10 gesture to judge mouth to mic distance, right or wrong? Uh, I think that we will take our favorite answer for all questions and say, it depends. <laughs> so, so it depends on what the, on what kind of mic you're using. Um, for a lot of mics, I guess mine is pretty close to that. Um, as far as that goes, um, typically what we do is we, um, uh, for SM58s, I usually tell people to just tap on your on your chin and just and then just move out about an inch. Like that's at an event, we want you to be about that close um, to make sure that it works. Uh, but uh, yeah, good, Courtney. I guess it depends on how big your fingers are. Uh, you yeah, know, exactly. If, you, if you're a basketball player, you know that might be a little too far away. Uh, but yeah, six to seven inches that's that's a good measure. And uh, like you said, uh, dynamics, the uh, PR40s, you want to get them, you know, about a fist away. Yeah, yeah and 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 yeah, a lot of times, hand up for the PR40. I, extend the fingers out for yeah i mean i tend to do more of if someone's going to ask me i tend to go more towards the fist than the than the hang 10 uh just because i feel like it you know you will get a little more air if you if i move back here you'll hear a little bit more um that's out there but you also hear a lot more of the room so it also depends on what's going on in the room do you have speakers is it a hard room soft room those are the things that will impact how close you want to get to that mic next question from simon ray midlands united kingdom with low or no budget, what would the panel suggest to get a good key for Zoom when the participant has blue eyes and wears green Air Force uniform? I go ahead, Courtney. You know, olive drab, I don't think would be a problem with a green screen in the background. Uh, you can fine tune your, you know, your clipping level on your greens to be fairly narrow and not extend out too much you know the darker areas yeah you might get a little fringing a little more fringing if you don't clean it up or you might get a little transparency but i think uh, you should be able to to create an acceptable green screen not a perfect green screen 
And I wouldn't worry about the blue eyes because then, you know, you'll just see through him and it'll look like uh, he's possessed. So that's great for the blue eyes. Blue eyes won't be a problem then if you're using green. Good. John? I would say with little or no budget, don't do it at all. <laughs> yeah. With little to no budget, I, I, I'd be very careful. Here's what the, the main thing that you want to look at is how clean is the green. So as you make your green screen more uh, precise, you actually can, you can even key cl- greens that are very close to each other. Um, what you're, when, you, when you think about that green screen, you want to really think about it being perfectly even across the, across the uh, side. So um, a lot of times, for instance, we want, if you think about a Lumiscope, um, that that's here. We want that green to be at about um, 70% and just straight across like this. Now it might bend down a little bit here and here, um, but the closer, the, the straighter this is across on a, on a Lumiscope and the, um, and the uh, thinner this line is, that that becomes a really, really um, tight target for your green screen solution. And that's going to make it a lot easier for you to key even green over green, which I've done. I've done green plants over top of, of, of a green, and it hasn't been a problem in the past. So, so it definitely can be done um, for, for that. But you really have to pay attention. Buying a chair mount or something that isn't very well lit is not going to work for you. It doesn't mean you have to spend a lot of money. I could probably go out and spend, I don't know, 50 to $100 and, and get a green that would work. Um, and that would be buying you know, some kind of either Westcott or, or uh, what are they called, Production Cowboy, one of those little stands with the green screen. And then I would go to Walmart. I've done this in the past. I'd go to Walmart and get um, uh, just some two, two four-foot uh, lights that I can put back there and put some green gel across them. And all of that's going to cost you about 100 bucks. And, uh, and then you're going to end up with a green screen that, that you could probably key everything out of. So, so that's, and then you just need a good keyer. Um, I'm assuming you might try to use an ATEM or something like that. The software keyers aren't going to be as good as the, as the Blackmagic hardware, um, but you might be able to get something that's, that's okay. I mean, I've done it in software, but it was my own software and it was designed for that. <laughs> so so I, I haven't seen, uh, we've offered to help other people with, with editing packages. Since I don't make that software anymore, I, I've offered to like tell them how we did it. And they're all like, oh, we have our own way to do it. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> all right, next question. From Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado, post-production of GoPro with media mod and first order recording on H3 VR. Use the media mod mic as a focus point for spatial audio as camera moves sound field, follows camera, view ambisonic spatial binaural output. Thoughts? Um, yeah, so so the, the one challenge here is uh, just what camera you're using and how much fan noise there is. So the, the problem we end up with with a lot of these, when especially because, you know, when you have a shotgun mic, it's designed to throw things away. When, when you have a uh, ambisonic, it's designed to capture everything around you. So one of the things that you may have trouble with is is really picking up what the what, one, I don't know if you'll have trouble with it. I know that I have had trouble with an ambisonic mic mounted to my camera because it picks up my camera um, fan. So, um, so think about that a little bit. You may want to extend it and move it away, um, you know, from you know from that. The other thing you want to look at is if there's anything that you want to um, actually capture that you might want to bring out. So you might want to mic on something specific. We some of the stuff we've been doing with ambisonic um, is a you know we have an ambisonic mic. But we might have some SM58s that are that are um, that we're talking into, and then we can mix those forward and back based on what what's necessary. Uh, next question. Uh, 
Mitch O'Hill from Wilmington, Delaware is writing in. What is a good source for getting a QR code that goes directly to your website? Don't want it to use as an intermediary, intermediate gateway. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Intermediate. Yeah, a lot of those uh, web creator QR codes can take you to through theirs to harvest clicks. Uh, but, I, you know, if you have Google Chrome, I guess this works on a Macintosh. Let's look. Um, this, uh, you open Chrome, you navigate to your website, then you just click on this little button here. And one of the choices is uh, generate QR code. And it'll generate it. And then you click download. And it downloads it as a PNG, which you can open uh, in another window or cut and paste and put into your uh, there it is. That's the PNG I put into your program. So I think it's built into Chrome. I don't think I have a plugin installed that does that. I don't remember doing anything like that, but you can test it on your Macintoshes, all you Mac people out there, and see if it works. Sorry, I, I was trying something. My computer did something funny there. So um, the one that I use right now is called uh, QR Factory. And, um, and so it is a, uh, it's, it's for the Mac. Um, and, uh, it is, um, I, I prefer not to use anything that, well, there's a couple of things. One of the things that's really good about the, um, uh, one of the things that, that's really, or useful, sorry, my computer just, I was trying to open QR factory and my computer went into a state that <laughs> doesn't went to full screen. I can't see anything. Um, the, um, so with uh, QR Factory here, um, let's see if I can uh, show it to you here. This is QR Factory here. So now what I can do is I can say um, I, I want www. Dot, um, um, let's see. Uh, we'll just go OH Factory. I don't know why I did that, but it doesn't matter. So now you have uh, this here. Now there's a lot of... Uh, you can, this is text or I guess I can set a URL and I don't know, I don't, I'm actually not sure what that um, does there, but here's factory.com. All right. So it builds that, builds this up. And what's nice about this is that, of course, you can save it. When you hit save, you get options of pings, TIFFs, PDFs, EPSs. So you can build a resolution independent version of this um, that's out there. You also have, um, uh, you can, you can go into customize here. And so, I mean, it's it's fine to be able to do a, you know, there's a lot of things that can do a basic um, uh, piece here, but I can also round all my pixels. So now they're all kind of have a more roundy look to them. Um, I can decide, you know, what the output size is. I can, I can change my reliability level, which will make it more dense, but make it easier to read for a lot of these things. I can change the solids. I can also add, you know, an icon in the center. Um, so I can um, pop that into there. There's a, I can build up and there's an icon border that can be created. So you have a lot more control here than you would have with just a kind of an automatic uh, QR generation. Most of the web services that do QR codes will do at least what QR Factory does, but you can't trust them. <laughs> so, so, so don't don't trust um, a web interface to to do that. So uh, they you know a lot of times you know they're building a code for it, and I've had situations where I built a code and then, you know, it set, needs a subscription and it let you do it for free. And then it comes back 30 days later and says, hey, if you don't pay a subscription, your QR code will send, go to our website instead of yours. So, um, so I learned quickly not to use those. And so um, QR Factory, uh, I think they have a version two 
uh, and um, they are also very responsive developers. So, so anyway, so I, I would highly recommend if, if you have a Mac that you use QR Factory. Go ahead, uh, John. I just checked Courtney's method on the on Macintosh on the browser. It works fine. It's a save as, but it's the share button on the top right-hand corner of the browser in the text input of the browser box. And, it, and does it save an EPS or, or ping or TIFF or does it give uh, you an option? Tell you. Yeah, it saves a, a PNG. Okay. I, yeah, I opened it and slid it over so you could see it. It's it's the little dotty kind, you know, with the little dots instead of the blocky square thing. So it's a little right. higher resolution, I guess, required to shoot it. Yeah, and, and, and again, that's why one of the reasons that I like I like stuff that will give me an EPS or PDF option just because then it's resolution independent as well. So um, so that's the, the other thing there. Um, next question. From here on the panel, Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. With the ubiquity of streaming services, we're seeing a reduction of consumers making it out to the theaters. Movies seem to disappoint at the box office, but budgets have also ballooned to the point of unsustainability. Thoughts on where this is going? I go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't make films for a living, but as a consumer of films and someone who's interested in this stuff, I look at the numbers on these massive budgets for these movies and even television's shows, and it just seems like the budgets keep going up and up and up, and we've got, you know, $300 million movies, and the the... There's, there seems to be a distressing amount of money being spent, even on these television shows, and it just seems unsustainable. There's an unbelievable amount of competition with streaming services now. And then you see these big movies getting released in theaters that are, according to critics, according to people watching these movies, they're good movies, but they're considered fail failures at the box office because they're not pulling in the numbers. You know, if, if they don't do well within the first week or two weeks, they're considered failures, which I find upsetting. I'm sure it's upsetting to the people working on these films and i just feel like there needs to be why why aren't the people making these the the content why aren't they kind of roping it back because i feel like they could make compromises in certain ways and still make these these shows and movies look cinematic and save a little bit of money why do we need to spend 300 million or 400 million on these it just i don't know how much longer we can go on yeah, I, I mean, I think your your concerns are valid. <laughs> so that there are that there are some issues here uh, that are that are becoming the problem is is no one very few people are going out to see movies that aren't big blockbusters. So if they're not to get people to leave their house, and and part of this has to do with I think the home technology. I have a relatively good home system, for instance. Um, I've got surround sound. I've got a big screen. It's really hard to pry me out of my house. You know, like like to to go to a theater. I I can I can spend. 15 or 20 dollars on apple tv and download something that i can watch um or i with extras and all kinds of little bit you know extra bits and pieces um or i can spend um you know for an average of 30 dollars a person if i'm going to get popcorn or any kind of drink or anything else i'm going to spend about 30 dollars a person and i have four people in my family in my my family that, that live here um and uh, and so that's you know i'm looking at a minimum of 120 dollars to go that creates a really high cliff, you know, for, for me to decide I want to go. I used to go to a, a movie every week. Like that was just what I did on a Saturday or Sunday. I got kind of, kind of into the habit because at ILM, we, any movie that, that I, that ILM or, uh, Sky Sound worked on, we would get a free screening in the mornings, um, at one of the, at the Roland Plaza or at somewhere, you know, somewhere that, that was here. And so, 
um, you got kind of used to going to movies all the time because we did that. And, and then I just got into the habit. Even when I wasn't there, I just got into the habit. I just go to a movie that dropped away over time, you know, and I just, and especially when I, when you start having kids and everything else, it, you know, that I, I just felt like it wasn't great. And then I also, I feel like, I don't know, Hollywood has kind of lost the thread, you know, in a lot of, they're, they're running out of things to make movies about. Um, they, they make a lot of unforced errors inside of their, inside of their films. Um, and so I think that it's become, you know, just harder and harder to find a movie that I, that I want to go to. So my, my average of 40 or 50 movies a year has dropped to two maybe three, you know, like, and I, and, and I'm a pretty hard moviegoer and I'm in the industry. So I think that that's the canary in the coal mine <laughs> that we're starting to see here. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree. There's, well, I think when, when movies started going to these visual effects, uh, um, basically the Marvel series and the DC comic series, you know, the, uh, when they started mining comic books and, uh, you know, theme park rides as the subject for a movie, uh, you know, they've run out of ideas. And that's kind of the problem to start with. So then they started trying just to <clears throat> throw money at them and make bigger and bigger CGI production, and, you know, with tons and tons. You you sit, sit through the uh, credits in a movie theater someday for one of those uh, tentpole movies. Uh, which take about, you know, 10 minutes for the credits to roll through, 10 or 12 minutes or so. And look at the 7,000 people that get credit on that movie uh, and the, you know, 10 different visual effects houses. And you'll understand why a movie costs, you know, $600 million or $400 million to produce. Um, with the strike on, though, there is a rumor that we may see kind of a in sudden influx of indie production. Uh, because the uh, indies don't have contracts with the major producers uh, and major studios. So these A24s, you know, the ones that that produce these, you know, story-driven movies that aren't effects-driven and they're not uh, franchises for a toy company and they're not, uh, you know, designed to market uh, something other than the movie. Uh, you'll see a lot of production of those because SAG actors, and I, I don't know about writers, maybe writers as well, uh, do have the ability to continue working on those films. So they have been given a waiver, I know, by some of the production studios here uh, to continue work uh, during the strike. So we may see an influx of those nice independent story movies. Uh, whether you're going to watch them in a theater or not, like Alex said, you want to go to a theater to see the big, you know, the building falling on people. Uh, or people crashing into buildings or throwing other giant transformers into buildings and, you know, uh, the endless parade of dancing pixels, as Dead, uh, Deadpool used to say. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the challenge is will people actually go to the theater to watch independent films? And I, I'm, not, I'm not clear that they will. Like, I think that the problem is, is that the habit of going to the theater has died so that people aren't really there like, oh, I'm going to go to it's Saturday night or Friday night. I'm going to go to the theater. That's the place to go the, to do those things. And so it has to be something that attracts people like I'm going to this film. You know, I, I went to, you know, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy, enjoy Mission Impossible. And so I watched all the Mission Impossibles and then I went to see it. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is that it, it is a good example. The parking uh, process at the place I went is so bad. Just, just paying for it. Like, I don't even care what the price is. I, 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 I just can't figure out how to pay at that parking lot. Like it's this weird, you know, some weird phone thing. And I'm usually pretty techie and it's super messed up. 
And I was just like, well, I don't, the chances of me going back, not over the movies, but just over the parking, it's very low, like very low, like very low that I ever come back to that, that location. And just cause it was, it was stressful for, you know, for me. And so, um, and so the, uh, so I think that that's the problem is, is, but it, that's all it takes now is people are like, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. And the, and again, the problem is to your point, Alex, I think is that the quality of the stuff that's happening on streaming is so high now too. It's not like there used to be this like TV was at a certain level and films at another level. Now there's a lot of stuff coming out on streaming that is at the same production quality that we would expect to see in a feature film and it's at home and there's no way to go see it in, 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 the, in the theater. And I think that that's also a challenge because I have so much content available to me um, at any given time uh, on a big screen that is very highly, you know, highly, I just watched... Uh, my wife and I just finished Jack Ryan last night, you know, and that was, it was great. <laughs> you know, like it was a good, it was a, you know, and, and I didn't need to go see that in a feature. And the, the interesting thing is from a habit forming perspective, uh, the streamers aren't incentivized to make movies. They're making some movies, but you're watching that slowly disappear because the, there's no value in them putting tons of money into a two and a half hour experience that isn't going to hold you for a while. They'd rather give you a six, a six episode experience or eight episode experience and develop the characters more, give you more content over time, you know, build something that's a little deeper. And so that's also a huge challenge because now we're getting into, wow, two and a half hours seems like a long time to, to watch something. You know, I, I know that I'm, I'm pretty sensitive uh, to now just thinking about where do I put a two and a half hour block to watch something as opposed to um, just watching something for 45 minutes or an hour. So it's also, it's a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say also, you know, with streaming, you can get 4K streams on just about any $50 device these days. And uh, a lot of projectors in rural America out there are only projecting 2K on a digital screen anyway. A so, lot of projectors, not just in rural America, a lot yeah, of projectors yeah, all over. Yeah, in multiplexes, most of them are 2K projectors. And the, the main, a big, you know, they'll have one showcase theater that'll have a 4K projector in it, but all the rest of them are 2K projectors. So you're seeing it in higher resolution at home. However, you know, I do find that when you're not paying $7 for a, a cup of popcorn, it just... It doesn't taste as good at home. You know, you know that I used to, I used to think, I used to think that, but, but I will say that after I, after I found the Amish popcorn that I buy on, on Amazon, um, the Amish popcorn with, uh, with the way I, the way I make it on a, on a little, this little thing that you turn, the I can't think of Amish it. mushroom popcorn with a whirly pop. Yeah, I understand. You're, it, you're... it might be the Amish, the, the, the mushroom, mushroom is really, really good. It's the closest to theater popcorn that you're going to get. But then there's these little delicate angel popcorn that's like really likes that. And, and, and different parts of my family, like different, different people in the family, like different ones. And so we trade around it. and all we get, what I have to admit, when you get used to that and you go back to the theater, you're like, eh. <laughs> Like, should I really buy? Should I really pay for this? Popcorn uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. You snuck in some of your own popcorn, didn't you? At that Mission Impossible, I did not. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I don't. The reason. So the the funny thing about um, I used to sneak sneak a lot of things into the theater. I don't um, because I know the problem is I, I work with theaters a lot, and so I understand the math of the of how they make money. And as a result, I tend not to sneak anything in because I, I realize that they only, that's their business model. They, because the, they can't just charge more for the ticket because uh, Hollywood takes the, the, per, the, per, the, um, the film studios take so much money from the theater 
that they make no money on on the on the, the literally the only thing they make money on is those concessions for the first couple of weeks. And the theater sucks all that money back, you know, to to them, and that's the way those deals work. And so I know that it's not, you know, like I think when I was growing up, I felt like it was just me fighting the man or whatever, and me just having the thing that I want. I don't want to pay four dollars of it. But then I kind of realized it is really kind of stealing from them you know, because it is, it's something that affects them. They're not just gouging us because they're trying to gouge us. They're, they're gouging us because that's the only way that theater exists. Um, and so I so I, I stopped sneaking things in because of that. Um, but it's, I didn't stop until I was doing a lot of work with theaters and, and became more sensitive to the to their cash situation. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. One thing I wanted to pose this question. Do we think we're going to see uh, an adjustment of budgets and actually go back to smartly reusing sets and, you know, the, the kind of stuff like Star Trek was a perfect example of this. Not so much now, but it used to be that, you know, sets, would, they, would, they would minimize the number of sets being used and they would reuse things and they were very creative about it. Because for me, as far as I'm concerned, I love seeing good effects, but the story and the writing and the characters should absolutely trump the effects. And I just think there's a lot of irresponsibility happening right now with the yeah. sheer amount of money just being thrown at stuff. And actually, I, tr I looked at the numbers. According to some of the articles that I found here, Star Trek Season 3, which had a new showrunner, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, sorry, Picard Season 3, had the... It, I didn't like the first two seasons. As a longtime Star Trek fan, I thought the writing was awful. This season three was amazing, but apparently the amount of money that they spent, it was done on a very tight budget. The amount of money they spent on the entire season is as much as they're spending on one episode of Discovery, which don't even get me started on the writing there. But that's a prime example, and I would just, I would love to see more just people being frugal with this. I don't think these shows need to be that expensive. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it goes through so many rounds of, of, of revision that you're not sure if, it, if it's really worth it anymore. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, the problem is for theatrical release, everybody's, the majors are all looking at global release, you know, so they want something that'll play in any language. So it can't have a very complex storyline or a storyline that only works in a certain culture. You know, it has to be a universal culture and everybody likes comic books. You know, they're easy to understand. They have, you know, four sentences of dialogue throughout the entire movie. So they're easy to translate, easy to dub, and everybody understands the action. So that's why you're seeing all these action movies. And that's why they're pouring all the money into them because they can make one movie and distribute it globally. The episodic television, this, the, what you're talking about as far as the story arcs and the, you know, episodic television has been doing that for, you know, a number of years. They've been doing, you know, uh, independent show, you know, each where each show, you know, has a beginning, middle, end, like the original Star Trek or like, you know, a next generation where each episode could be viewed without necessarily, um, you know, having to follow a series uh, chronological time from one episode to the next. Nowadays, they've gotten into the uh, long story arc that covers, you know, the whole season. And that makes for more binge viewing and more for more uh, serial viewing. They discovered that, that people would, you know, if they missed one, they used to catch them on the reruns. But now, since you can stream them, they want to stream the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that that makes sense for the streamers. I think that in the, I, you know, the, 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 the stories that have made the most money are law and order because there is no, there is no thread. Like you can you can open up a law and order because their syndication has been so they made so much money on syndication that that it 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 hasn't you know they've 
just printed money with that with that series. And um, I think we need more more of those to some degree. But I think that the real question, especially as we go through the strike, is whether what's going to happen right now. We we're looking at you know in twenty twenty five. If this strike goes until the end of the year, there'll be almost nothing in 2025. Like, there's just no, like, it's not, there won't be any writing. <laughs> you know, and then there won't be you any mean almost nothing in 2024. No, no, 2024, um, they probably shot a, a lot of movies are probably in the, you know, not in the can, but they're in post-production, which isn't, you know, hit by the union. So they've shot a lot of stuff. You'll still see movies come out in 2024 um, that have, that, are, that they've already um, finished all the, the live action work on. Um, so I think 2024 will be lighter. 2025 could be a wasteland. You know, like, you know, and, and, and then that'll, you know, it's just another one-two punch from COVID and everything else. And I think that theaters also have to think about theaters are a great place to get people together. The question is, is that is are movies the only thing they could do there? You're starting to see fan uh, um, fathom events doing more more events across those theaters. You're seeing IMAX doing live streaming across the theaters. You're seeing a lot of other things happening in those theaters. And I think that what we may be getting ready for is not so much that that films are going to recover, but that theaters are going to figure out other things to do with a large space that that can be tied together so i think that i think more likely two three four years from now we'll end up with a lot of screens that are dedicated to things that are other than other than movies because i think movies i think the era of watching going to the theater is it's not that it's going to go away but i don't know if it justifies sixteen thousand screens um next question from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Many cameras experience overheating causing short recording times. Can an external battery remedy or extend the recording time by not having a hot battery in the camera? Could the battery bay hold a fanless cooler instead? Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I don't know if there's such a thing as a fanless cooler. There's, uh, uh, you know, Peltier chips, but that just creates heat on one side, which has to be removed and cool on the other side. So you still got to use a fan on to get to, to move the heat somewhere else or water coolers, which has a closed system of water that moves it somewhere else where of course there has to be a heat exchanger. So uh, heat has to go away. It's not necessarily the battery that gets hot. It's the uh, chips themselves uh, that get hot. All those transistors uh, that are uh, heating up to sample those pixels, uh, get hot after a long period of time. And that's why uh, all the cameras that uh, that are out there shooting production have fans that kick on automatically as soon as you hit the stop button uh, to cool the chips back down to try and manage it to so, so that uh, when you hit it again, if you're doing live video, that's a problem. And if you're doing extended long takes like 30 minutes, 30 minute takes, it's a problem. But normal production where you're doing a three to five minute take and then you're shutting down and it'll be five minutes before the next take, you know, they have a chance to cool the temperature back down on the heat sinks so that they can, uh, you know, do another take without them overheating. Moving the battery someplace else probably wouldn't do much to cool it off. For smaller cameras, we've actually, so if they have an internal camera, um, we've definitely had something like GoPros. One of our things that we used to do when we were streaming from GoPros was immediately pull the batteries out and power them from their USBs. In fact, there was no way. Now, we had six of them right next to each other because we were doing 360 streaming out of them. So it can, you know, pulling the batteries out can help them manage cooling um, to some degree. So, um, it, and it's just another, the, the battery does, does get warmer. It doesn't get hot, but it gets warmer when it's being used. And it's, so that 
can, can, you know, can affect it over time. Um, but it also depends on the temperature. Sometimes you have to just figure out a way you're going to cool the camera. Um, I know that there was a production in Mexico that a friend of mine worked on where they had to have these big water packs, you know, like these like iced water packs put on the red cameras to keep them from, from overheating. <laughs> so, so it was, and they, you know, that was kind of a, an ongoing, you were going to say something, Courtney? You look. I remember shooting in the desert in the 70s with right. a Panaflex, and we had to put ice packs on the camera because it would get so hot that the boards in the camera wouldn't function correctly. Right, right. <laughs> and that's with the film camera. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, been exactly. a perennial problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Mitchell Hill from Wilmington, Delaware is back wanting to know what is your preferred external monitor recorder to use with your DSLR camera? P extra points for Apple ProRes. My uh, my my favorite that I've ever used is the Pixie, the, the sound device's Pixie 5. Um, it was just this great, I mean, it's still, I still have it's just out of reach over there, but it's, um, but it is a, it's a small monitor. It has tons of tools, ProRes, scopes, all kinds of little bits and bobs. Uh, it handles audio really well. Um, you could put a, we were able to put, um, um, XLR inputs on the bottom. There's a little extra piece that you could pop onto it. Um, that's been my favorite. Uh, I think the Blackmagic 12, uh, 12 G is, I think my, my new favorite of those. And then after that, I would say there's a host of Atomos uh, monitors, including the one that I'm fiddling with right now, which isn't very expensive, um, that, uh, or I will be fiddling with over the weekend, um, that, that I think are also pretty solid monitors. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you mentioned my favorite, the uh, Blackmagic Design 12. There it is for 12G SDI, 7-inch. Um, because it, it records in H.264 or ProRes or... MXF uh, and kind of wrappers that you need. Uh, so it does a great job of that. And it gives you a monitor to look at with some, you know, audio monitoring. You've got, uh, you know, meters on it. It does conversion between uh, SDI and um, HDMI, and it has uh, uh, balanced audio inputs on it too. So that's another neat thing that a lot of them don't have if you want to uh, use uh, other than the PIX240 to bring balanced audio in and embed it in the video. Yeah, and the other one that to, to look at is the Shogun. Atomos makes a Shogun, um, and that's if you are specifically uh, looking for Atmos. <laughs> so, or, I'm sorry, not Atmos, but Vision. Uh, so uh, I think the only small monitor that, 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 that supports Dolby Vision is, is the... Um, uh, is the Shogun. So also think about that if you need HDR. There is HDR support, I believe, in the 12G, uh, but it's HDR 10 and HLG and not uh, not Vision itself. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael is asking, have any of you experienced neck strain issues if you're using an external monitor with your MacBook Pro and have the majority of your project on the external monitor position next to your MacBook Pro? The answer is uh, yes, uh, for me anyway, um, and it has to do with the direct the where your eye line is. Um, and so, typically, um, I think that what I was told and what I use now when I think about where that monitor goes is that the monitors here. You know, I try to make sure that my eyes are just above in that top third right here. So I'm looking slightly down and never that far up. Um, and but this is the that's the line that I'm I'm usually trying to to manage there. And I found that that re definitely reduces the amount of neck strain that I have. But if you do something where you're looking down like this or looking up, it definitely affects uh, how your neck works. <laughs> so uh, definitely take that into account. Next question. 
from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles is Google's news writing AI tool that it's pitching to major news outlets, really a tool designed to replace them. And he offers up a link on theguardian.com. Good, John. So the good thing about BARD is is it indexes not only to the LLM, but also the search engine information. And they did a fantastic job of integrating both browser information and the LLM into one interface, unlike uh, GPT that has a plugin for for all the web stuff, and it's really clunky and really slow. Um, so hats off to Google for 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 integrating those two together. I just don't think news outlets will use this product. Yeah, I think I don't think that they'll use it immediately. I think a lot of some smaller news outlets are already starting to use some of these tools. Um, and really, what the the advantage of of these tools are not really to write the the pieces that are on the front page. There are a lot of um, perfunctory things that you see in a newspaper that you really don't need a person writing. You know, and that's the thing that I think that is the summary of the city council meetings. The you know, and these all cost money. Like <laughs> they cost money for the for the newspapers. They they you know, it's part of what the service that they provide. But there are um, updates on stocks, and these are the basic um, what they've learned. And this is five years ago. They could build AI that would write, you know, what happened in the stock market today, and without commentary, just you know, just basically telling you what's what. And the nobody knew the difference, like between that and a person writing it. And so I think that there are definitely things that can be written. Um, that that are kind of these like and a, another good example is we're starting to use Mid Journey more and more for uh, thumbnails, you know, for a variety of different shows and so on and so forth. I use them. I use them sometimes for Mac Break, um, and um, they're really fun. That can be very creative, but it doesn't have to be something specific, you know, and it doesn't really generate revenue. It just makes it kind of fun. And so I think those are the places where AI really is um, going to be, be used. I think that, again, I think that you're going to see city council meetings is a good example. I always use it because, like, I mean, almost nobody knows what's happening there. And it's because it's not very well published. Um, and so um, I think that the reason, so I use it as an example because it's the kind of thing that you could record the city council meeting, transcribe it into 60 languages, put it back into voices if you wanted to, and even and then summarize it and send it to the paper, and that could all happen in fifteen minutes after the show, after the um, after it happened, and more people would know what their government's doing. <laughs> you know, like and I, maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe that's why they don't want to do it. But 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 that's that would be um, you know those kinds of things are something that AI can do really well that you wouldn't necessarily want to pay a person to do or a high level person to do. Good, Courtney. Yeah, the big question is, can the AI create new conspiracy theories? You know, from scratch, so that you know. It, that seems it to doesn't be have the to thing. create it. That it is a the thing that's on all of the news <laughs> coverage these days. Yeah, yeah. The idea that it would just give you the facts and not not a lot of um, uh, commentary that would be that's un, that would be very unusual. Uh, yeah. Quick reminder: that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour. Uh, we're going to be talking about loading in, loading out in the second hour, um, and what you want to think about and how you want to approach that. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you have other questions about digital media production, go ahead and throw them in for the first hour coverage and make sure to vote on them because that tells us how you'd like us to answer them. Uh, next question. From Khalid Aljumaya is Hassa Saudi Arabia. Alex, any update about the annotation app? I'm very excited. I can't wait to use it. Overall, it, uh, it works great. I got colors. I've got can change the colors here. I've got lots of, um, I can change the, um, the thickness. This is the update for it. 
and and you can see that it's nice and smooth not like the one that i had before um and uh, but i can you know make it nice and you know really nice and thick and then immediately um you know make it uh, thinner here so you can kind of do those kind of things so it, it's working really well um the the mac version works really well the, there's a couple little things that we're fiddling with on the ipad version so and they're both theoretically going to be one app so um it's just mostly some real minor stuff if you're interested in beta testing it, you can reach reach out to me directly tell me how you're going to use it and uh and we'll see if we can't get you on the beta uh it's super close um uh, uh Wansi robles has been doing an amazing job at, at putting it together i'm really happy with it and so i use it every day <laughs> so so anyway uh but but I, i'd like to get a couple of things i i have to admit that i'm very adverse to negative reviews on on the app store so i'm trying to get a couple things that for most people would be minor but i know would show up eventually so i'm trying to just we're just trying to hammer some of those things out um and so uh anyway it's, it's good but if you want to beta just reach out to me in discord next question Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado returns with, I am presenting two posters at an international snow science workshop, PDF format size, font size limited. Can I fit QR codes, augmented reality anchors, USD references, YouTube clips, conference goers may scan and view. Yeah, I'm just, um, PDF format size font limit. I, I'm, yeah, I, uh, so he's got his posters tight in size, so he's concerned about resolution. I think. Yeah, I mean PDFs can be pretty small, and and if you're putting them on a poster, you can you can get them. You, you don't have to be very large. Now, what I will tell you is that I would uh, what I do. I use a lot of QR codes for the events that I work on. I also buy a URL usually, and that URL is usually six to seven characters long that has something to do with the event. So it might be you know it's a, some kind of shortened um, version of. You know, it might be al askalex.com or, or, or augment this or whatever it is. Um, those kinds of things are the kind of things that I'll, I'll build a short URL, cost me eight bucks. Um, and, uh, and, I, and then I'll tie it together, you know, for where I want people to go. It'll bounce from there to where I want them to go. Um, you can use Bitly and you can use a lot of other things. But, you know, I, I, I find it, I just, I don't do enough events where I can't just go ahead and build, you know, buy another account. I mean, there's so many URLs now, .io, .shop, .whatever it is. And a lot of them are eight bucks. And it's just nicer to, it, it's much more custom to have something like that than a bit.ly. Bit.ly turns a lot of people off. Um, whereas if you build a, a nice sh short URL, you can you can build it on your own. So that's what I would recommend as far as a URL goes. Um, the um, As far as, uh, you know, from there, you can, uh, you know, how you use USDZ and references, you should be able to um, scan and view those right now. It should take you to a web page um, that allow you to do that. I don't really know the mechanism of that at the moment. What we would do typically, if a, most of the stuff I've done is object-based. So you want to see an object, you hit a QR code, it'll pop up an object on your, and this is, works on your iPhone, doesn't necessarily work on Android, and it'll just want to be set somewhere on the ground, on a table, whatever. And as soon as you hit it, it just pops up into, into space. Um, so that stuff works right now. Um, and, uh, as far as, um, you know, other clips and videos, uh, you should be able to any, again, if you build this URL, the way I'm talking about it, it can, it can forward back to it. So take, take that into account. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is back asking what resolution do you run your MacBook pro at? How can you mitigate the eye stream when working at higher resolutions for long periods? 
So I'm a little older. I run at 1080p. <laughs> I would like, you know, like I don't run everything in 4K. What I've done is I don't need to because I have mo- many monitors. So right now I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine monitors um, with all kinds of different information that I need, and they're all at 1080p. Um, so instead of trying to pack everything into one monitor, I've just found that I like to spread it all out and have it and have it. I can look at it where I want to look at it and I can focus on what I want to focus on. Um, I've got this new monitor. I don't know if I can pull this into screen that I'm testing. Uh, let's see, this is this little tiny one. And it's got, it's got a, um, it has a, a visa mount on the back, but USB-C powered. And I'm just about to plug it into a bunch of things, but it's super small. It's designed as like a little travel monitor, but I'm playing with using these because they're they're a little smaller and easier to easier to work with there so anyway point is is that i um uh i uh i prefer more monitors and it does make you very sensitive to uh laptops you know i think that's one of the reasons i don't like laptops anymore is that i'm so used to having so much real estate all the time that going back to a laptop is pretty painful next question from Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. I have changed a few friendly name devices in Windows using the registry and was hoping that these friendly names would show up in the Zoom Rooms controller. They did not. Is this possible? Friendly names. Oh, I because the because the Zoom Room has codes. It's using codes. I, I, I don't know if you need to do that in the device names um, in the registry. I think... Uh, if I remember correctly, how we do it is we change the names inside of Zoom. So inside of the Zoom reference, uh, if we're doing Zoom's Rooms controller, uh, if if I'm reading your question correctly, uh, what we what we do is we go into Zoom and we can go into the Zoom Rooms and we can change their names there. That's what the controller is looking at when it builds the names. Is uh, what's in the what's defined inside of Zoom, not what's. I don't think they pay attention to what's in the computer. Uh, next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is investing in a video camera for family adventures. If you were buying today, GoPro Hero 11 or Insta360 Go 3? If I was going to choose between the two of those, I'd get the Insta360 Go 3. I think that uh, GoPro has been a great company. I've had so much trouble. I, I don't have the 11. Uh, I think the last one I bought was the 9. And I bought almost every one of them since up until about the 9. And there was a point where I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, and so I haven't bought the 10 or 11. So maybe they've gotten significantly better or gone back to the basics or whatever. The interface is just so bad on the GoPro. Um, and it has been forever. And you get used to the, you know, to the abuse. But it's, it's really you know, they need to rethink that completely. Um, and it, you know, it, it was, it broke new ground and a lot of people got used to it, but I think they've kind of missed it. The other ones I would look at as the uh, DJI makes their own as well. Um, so I would take a look at that one as, you know, and, and compare it with everything else. But if I was choosing between a GoPro and an Insta360, I'd pick the Insta360. They're moving much faster, you know, like they, they have velocity. Um, they're, they're innovating a lot faster than most of the other camera um, groups. Um, next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California is asking, is the PTZ Optics Studio Pro a good webcam solution? And he offers up a link from BH Photo. Um, and I'm, uh, let's see here. Sorry, I'm a little behind on capturing that one there. Um, okay, yeah. So this is a, it's a little live streaming 1080p, 60 um, USB-C and HDMI output. I, well, I don't know. I mean, it looks really nice, actually. So um, this is PTZ Optics. Um, it is a... Let's see, they don't, um, I'm looking for their, uh, 
uh, what they don't define and what always bothers me is when the first thing that I look at when I see a new camera is uh, chip size. <laughs> like, you know, so I just want to know how big the, um, you know, the, I don't really care about what the, and I, and I guess I feel often like when, um, when I don't get a really great uh, chip size, then I get worried that I'm, that it's not going to turn out. But, um, but what I will say is that the, what's, oh, it's really, um, I will say, I'm going to, I'm say, uh, we, we should see if we can get a hold of one of these. Um, this looks like a great camera. I'm like, I don't know because we haven't used it yet, but this looks like it solves many problems. This one is really designed for a webcam, you know, usage. It's not, it's not, it's designed for people to do exactly what we've been, um, talking about the, um, oh, the video sensor is, that's eh, a one third inch chip. So that's kind of an unfortunate, you know, it, it's an unfortunate thing that they, that, that PTZ optics, it feels like they, they're, they're very close. Like, so it's, it's the field of view is uh, horizontal field of view is 72 degrees, which is a really nice, um, you know, it's a, still a little wider than I would go, but it's, it's pretty, um, it's a, it's much better than the 90 or the 120 or what a lot of other people are, are doing. So I like that. Um, it looks like a solid build. It's pretty expensive. Uh, and at 699, it needs to have at least a half inch chip, if not a one inch chip. So if they if they swap the chip out and charge $100 more, I think that they might actually sell. I really think that someone ought to do exactly what PTZ Optics is doing, um, but make it Super 35. <laughs> like they would make they would sell as many as they could make, you know, at 700 bucks or $800 or even 999. A Super 35 web camera at 999 would sell as many as they could make. You know, like it because people would suddenly, you know, like it's it's just a missing. Um, piece what what PT, PTZ optics looks like they got everything else right like that camera looks like a great I mean it might be nice to have PTZ which is what they have but of course they're trying to bring that price down but what I will say is they've got everything else correct except for the chip size and the chip size does matter you know it, it, it isn't something that you can kind of uh, get around a lot of times um, next question from Andy Korkendorfer, Vieira, Florida. Is it possible to show multiple camera sources from a single zoom presenter directly without a switcher? It is um, with Zoom Rooms. So Zoom Rooms uh, can provide that. I think you can get up to, if, if you if you make it up for that presenter, it's not out of the bare but basics. For some reason, I think that you could put, the, theoretically put two in. Um, you know, you could put two sources out from a regular Zoom Room using the screen share and optimizing for video. And so there's a way to potentially do that, but, if, but you could do a zoom room and it will do only audio out of the first one out of the main camera, but you could have up to, I believe four other, uh, outputs from that, um, you know, from that zoom room that are going back into zoom that could be, uh, cut between. So that's, a, that, that might be one option to, to, to do multi-camera from there. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado is back. Live streaming on YouTube and other platforms often hosts miss something in the comments. Is it possible to use a receipt printer to have a hard copy of comments? The hosts often miss something in the comments. Um, yeah, a lot of hosts don't even look at the comments. You know, I was actually you know, talking to a, someone about this in their live stream. Um, you know, they 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 will glance at it, but they don't want to see all of them because a lot of the comments are so bad. Um, you know, and so they so they uh, you know I don't know if if a lot of them want to see anything in the comments or you know, I I just talk to a lot of creators that try to skip the comments altogether. Good, Courtney. 
Yeah, I don't understand the receipt printer because it would probably make noise during the, the show. And then uh, what would you do? You know, bring up a little, you know, piece of paper and read the comments off of it. It'd be better off just to have someone moderating the comments and pulling selected comments out and putting them in a mm -hmm. text file and putting them up on the, on the teleprompter or something. And, and, them. But, and automating yeah. it would be remarkably hard because of the way that the, for privacy reasons and all kinds of other things, YouTube makes it really hard to use APIs to grab comments. <laughs> so I know because we've tried to tie our systems into theirs and it's, it's something that we just gave up on, you know, so we, 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 we can do it. Uh, with about a week of warning, but we don't do it regularly because it's just so rough. Um, next question. Jesse Mills from the San Francisco Bay Area has another question. What is the most affordable way to scale a 16 to 10 MacBook output to 16 by 9? Would like to mirror the display rather than create a secondary resolution or aspect? Uh, if you mirror the display to a 1080p source, it should just go to 1080p. Like it, uh, most Mac Pros, um, if you just, if you just, if I plug a Mac Pro into my extreme and I say mirror, it's going to, uh, it should mirror to that, you know, 1080p. It should snap all my, all the screens to a 16 by 9. Um, to, that's what it does for me anyway. So I, I don't know. It, it shouldn't, um, if you're doing the old, the only way we ever got 16, um, 1610 is a common, obviously that's what the Mac will do, but what it, um, but if you use HDMI, so it's USB-C to HDMI or HDMI, it'll work. If you go DVI or DVID um, or DVI or DVID, it, it, it would, you know, if you're converting to that in some way, shape or form, it will stick to the 1610 because that's a, a known format for it. But I have not ever seen that happen with HDMI. Uh, next question. Our regular contributor here on the panel, Mitchell Hill from Wilmington, Delaware, is asking, the great Tony Bennett just passed at the age of 96. Would it be possible to have AI sample of his voice and provide a new rendition? RIP, Tony. I bet you he thinks. I bet you he thinks he would think that that was funny. <laughs> like when you see interviews with him, he seems pretty, pretty easygoing. He seemed pretty easygoing about those things. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I can have a new song. I left my voice in San Francisco server or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That'd be, that'd be perfect. That next question from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. With so much discussion of camera autofocus, how about spatial audio autofocus and mixing? I have a first order ambisonic mic recorder and Zoom F3 with two shotgun mics or contact mics and GoPro media mod mic, camera focus guides, spatial audio. Um, yeah, I think that uh, we needed to, to get to talk about how we're doing what we're doing a little in a little bit more detail. So stay tuned for that. And we'll talk about uh, how we're processing that. Um, so I think that uh, I don't know if it'd be auto mixing, but I think that it would be I think we could play with some I think we should illustrate what we're doing. So stay stay tuned for that. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia and here on the panel. Atomos have a 17-inch and 24-inch HDR monitor that looks very well-specced and is reasonably priced. Anyone in the, field, uh, in the field test these and have good results, he provides an Atomos.com link. So I haven't owned one or bought it, but I've definitely seen them on set, and they look amazing. 
So I will say that the, you know, it, it has been now. I admit that on the um, uh, a lot of the sets that I have that I'm using HDR monitors, I'm using monitors that are a little more expensive than those ones, and so they've kept up. You know, these these ones don't look as good as the Sony um, the Sony cameras that we're using, uh, the Sony monitors that we're using. But those Sony monitors, you know, are in the ten, they're measured in tens of thousands of dollars, you know, for for those um, for those displays. And so, um, but I think that they've been very competitive uh, for and definitely for the price. Um, they, I think Atomos has done a pretty good job with the seventeen and twenty four inch monitors. Um, next question. Mitchell Hill from Wilmington, Delaware is back. How do I get a baby pin spigot on my C-stand boom? It's just a straight rod. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I don't know. I mean, the the rod on a C-stand is five-eighths of an inch, the same diameter as the uh, baby pin is. So you could use it as a baby pin and then just mount a... Uh, a bail mount uh, or, or three-way mounting block, they call them, which is designed to accept a five-eighths inch spigot, a five-eighths inch pin on whatever it is you're trying to attach to the end of the C-stand. And I, I don't understand unless you want to, unless you have something with a pin on it that you want to attach to the end of the arm, use the other end of the arm that has the knuckle on it you lock it into the knuckle that's what the knuckle is for is locking in a pin and the other end of the arm which is just a straight rod is five eighths inch and you can slide you know any any five eighths uh, inch mounting block over that and tighten it down so i'm not sure what you need uh, that isn't already accommodated by the c-stand next question jack rupel from breckenridge colorado could AI focus only conference presentations, scientific journals, industry publications to promote a disruptive domain knowledge concept? I have to, I, I think I probably have to get a definition of what you mean by a disruptive domain knowledge concept. So I, I'm, I, maybe that's a, a newer term that, that I haven't, uh, I'm trying to, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can, um, uh, I could probably ask ChatGPT. This this would be the, the most cir circular thing is to ask ChatGPT what that is. Um, it's a new way of doing. Okay, here we go. Seven days ago. Wow, it's very new. Uh, disruptive technology, a new way of doing something that causes. Uh, it's just disruptive. That's not disruptive. Uh, domain. No, I, I, just uh, rethinking the role of domain expertise in in disruptive efforts. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> so it's the first time I've seen that term. And I, I, I know that I probably, you know, in the internet, I should have seen all of those terms in detail, but I haven't, haven't seen that one. So, um, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but I will now, now I'm going to need to know what that is. And so, so stay tuned for that. Um, a quick uh, reminder that tomorrow we have accessibility. We'll be talking about accessibility there. Um, in the workforce, uh, I think that the, the accessibility um, Saturdays have gone really, really well. And uh, not only have they been great subjects to discuss, uh, but they have also been um, just the, the process of what we're doing and how we're doing those um, have been really, really interesting. So definitely um, stay tuned for that. I'll be there tomorrow morning with everybody in the for the first hour to answer your questions. So if you've got questions about accessibility or just general general um, tech questions, 
uh, go ahead and uh, make sure to come by on Saturday morning. Of course, Sunday is the day that we have introspection. I don't think we talk about it much. We just kind of assume everybody knows what Sunday is. But Sunday is when we, we, if you have questions about about office hours or more philosophical questions, we dealt with a little bit of if you saw that little thing we talked about theater. Well, that's what Sunday's like the whole time. So um, so we talk a little bit about that. So um, definitely, if you feel like uh, asking more questions about what we're doing here, the industry, more philosophical questions around how media impacts the world. Um, those are things that we kind of tend to talk about on Sunday. We, you don't know that because we don't stream it. <laughs> it's kind of a open conversation that we have there. So um, uh, also a quick reminder that we are still looking for volunteers if you're interested in working on the second hours, working out with us, figuring out how to research those, how to define those. Uh, you'll see a link that I posted in Discord about that in um, in, in the Alex announcements. Uh, so if you're interested in, in being part of the second hour production, uh, let us know. And welcome to the second hour where we talk about, uh, we're going to talk about loading in, loading out. I know it seems like you know, we are a group that has been capable of talking for an hour about gaff tape. So I felt like we're also a group that could probably talk about loading in and loading out. Uh, if the panels, ha if the panelists have any uh, things they want to add, go ahead and raise your hand uh, in the panel view there. Um, but, you know, one of the things that it's, you know, it, there is a, in most things when we're talking about shows, will tell you all the time, and this is just for a general show, you got to know the most important thing is how do you get into the show and how do you get out of the show? <laughs> you know, it's, and so in the same, in the same way, because once you get into the show, there's a, there's a there's thing, but how do you get the thing started? How do you end it? In the same way, how do you get into the building? It turns out to be a thing, you know, so um, one, you know, there's a couple things that you, you know, kind of want to think about. And we'll jump into questions and then come back to some examples as well. But um, if anyone here wants to add anything, but one of the things that you want to really think about is it's really important. You can have an entire show fall apart because you don't know how you are going to get in, um, you know, so, you know, it, you get there and there's a, so we've had issues where, for instance, I don't think I have any good pictures of this, but someone didn't take a picture. So we were coming in with, it depends on the kind of gear that you have also. So when I started doing load-ins, um, we, we started with, I think we had a catering cart that we put a bunch of, uh, I think that they were like little milk crates and we just threw cables into them. And, and we, and we, and we rolled them from our office, which is about a block away from Moscone into Moscone, you know, and it, and I, uh, well, you know, it seemed per perfectly fine because it was our first show that we had ever done. And we thought that that wasn't that big of a deal, but it was a real, you know, it was very painful, you know, to get in and out. Uh, you don't, you have a cart isn't very good to get up and down things. There's a lot of things, especially like a, a catering cart, um, just wasn't really built for this. And so we started with those kinds of things. Um, we then, uh, you know, moved to, you know, some more cases and so on and so forth. Uh, over time, we started buying Pelican cases, you know, so Pelican cases were what we used for there. And then what happens as you, as you kind of grow and work on larger projects, you move from Pelican cases to road cases and those road cases come off of, of trucks and how you load in starts to change. Um, what I will say is that I, you know, I was watching, I, I, you know, I, I was watching a, uh, uh, I went to a concert the other night um, and um, saw two different bands play. And you can tell one band is the opening act and the other band is the is the touring act. And you could tell the difference between who's done this a lot <laughs> versus so the opening act had things in bags. They had little boxes. They had, you know, all these little things. The touring act had 
road cases <laughs> that just opened up with all their guitars and opened up with all the bits and pieces. Because once you, once you do this for 20 years or whatever, or 30 years, you know, things kind of refine. In fact, you know, with the, um, uh, I, you know, I've had, you know, the wardrobes are road cases, the, the, um, the printer and everything else is all loaded in, um, inside of those, inside of those pieces there. But, but I think that those are the things that you want to start, you start to, as you do this more. So the idea here is maybe we can save you a little time, um, on, on kind of talking about how, uh, how you get in and out of those. But what I was going to say earlier was we had a, someone do a walkthrough and walkthroughs are really important when you have a larger event. You may think, oh, I can just show up. And you can for a smaller event and you don't have a lot of gear and the gear isn't very heavy. Um, but as soon as you start going, I'm going to have a road case or I'm going to have a pretty much a, a bag that's larger than 50 pounds. Um, if, as soon as something's more than 50 pounds, you need to know how you're going to get in now. <laughs> like, you know, like it, because, you know, if, if it's if you come in and it's this, you have a 70 pound case and you have to take that up six flights of stairs because there's no elevator, um, you're going to really wish you had done a walkthrough and figured out what what that was going to look like um, to make that actually happen. So um, and so we make a lot of decisions. Uh, walkthroughs are, are really, really important for us. Um, and, you know, figuring out, you know, and, and again, the, one of my complaints is I'll have people go in and they'll take a bunch of pictures of my of the room that I'm going to do the event in. If I send somebody out to do a walkthrough, they'll go through it but then they won't manage the egress. You know, like, how am I going to get in and out of the... And typically what I do is I have them take a lot of photos of the different ways to get in. And then um, oftentimes I have them walk, like just turn your camera on and walk from the front door where I'm supposed to load in. I want you to walk all the way up you know, to where we're going to load in. And I, I just need you to capture a video of that so I can see it. <laughs> so I know, I know what's going on. Now, if someone's more has done this a lot, I don't need to do that because they'll write down, there's a hump here. There's a, like we, what I keep on wrapping around them to come back to. Um, there was a, what someone didn't a annotate for us on a load in was that there was a three inch um, kind of step, one step. Everything else is all just a, you know, path out to, um, I don't know, 42nd Street in New York or something like that. and But everything else was a, a smooth load in. And so all the pictures and the picture that they took was taken over from the high point of the of the step. So when we looked at the pictures, we thought, oh, okay, this will work. We can, we can load cases in. Um, when we got there, what we didn't realize is that it dropped three inches. And a lot of our cases were too heavy to for one person to just pull over three inches because these are all road, you know, road cases. And so what we ended up having to do is plant two people there and then, and then have another two people coming in and out with the case and lift it up over that and lift it up over that. And that was super taxing for our, for our crew you know, to, to make that happen. Um, and so uh, those are the kind of things that can happen if you don't really pay attention to how you're going to get in, how you're going to get out. Um, also, you, you want to take a look at um, I'll see if I can find some pictures for you here. But but the the other thing is that you want to look at like I take a lot of pictures of docks. So I've been loading in and out of docks for 30 years. And you want to pay attention to um, the height is a dock. Is there a dock height load in and will you have access to that? Um, or is there going is there a ramp? to the side of the dock, because if you have a low car, you're going to show up in a small, um, you know, you, you get sensitive to what is dock height and what's not dock height. So if you have a truck that you want to be looking for trucks that are dock height, if you're going into a dock, that means you can back in and just roll everything out. If you come in, if you rent a U-Haul that is not dock height, which is most U-Hauls are not dock height, you're now going to have to figure out how you're going to get them off that truck 
and how you're going to get it up the ramp. Is there a ramp? How is that going to work? You know, where is that going to go? Um, and like, can you, and also now you have a U-Haul truck and are you, does it have a, um, a ramp that will pull out or is it something that you ha need to bring a ramp um, to pull those things out um, because now you don't have anywhere to just load off of. Um, the great thing about dock heights, if you're bringing a lot of big stuff in, is that you just roll it straight out on the dock and you're off to the races. And so those are the things that you want to, you know, you want to be thinking about, the, you know, the, you know, those little humps. It's what really gets you on load in, load out are little little bumps like there's a foot here that you have to you have to cover and and, and it doesn't seem like a big deal until you have to cover it a hundred times to get all your stuff out um and so knowing exactly what you know where you're going to go how you're going to get through it also when you talk about load in are you loading into a large facility and is that facility a union facility so um if you're going into a large hotel or if you're going in um specifically if you're going to a convention center um generally the people that are are going to be there are teamsters and it's their job to take things off your car, off your car, off your um, uh, truck, not you, uh, you know, and, and and so you need to be it, it means a couple of things. One is um, and, and that's done, by the way, for as much as much for safety. If you had everybody pulling everything off of their car after off their trucks randomly, it would create chaos. So having the team that's that's running the dock running the dock makes sense because it just means that they understand who's doing what and that's being coordinated. But it also means that you're scheduling dock time. So you're now going to say, I'm going to be here. And usually, you know, on a large event that we go into, we schedule, like I will be here at 12, 15. Um, and, and then, and, and sometimes you're not going to be there and you're going to go to a holding location. So you're expected to check into a holding location that might be two or three miles away. And you're going to sit there and wait until they tell you that they're ready for you, but they're not going to put you in line until you're in the holding position. <laughs> so you can't just show up at the venue and expect to get in They're They're coordinating, they're building that, that process. And there's someone that you have to ask, you know, who's coordinating this, especially at, again, at a large convention, uh, or conference where there's a lot of stuff going in and out of a convention center, um, there's a lot of coordination that's required there um, to make sure that works. But it also means when someone else is loading your your stuff out, it also means that you um, that you need to make sure that you pack everything in a way that makes sense. So that means that you are clearly marking what's yours. You're saying how many. This is four cases out of. This is case four out of 20. This is, um, this is the room that it goes into. This is the, you know, these are the things that are, so everything has to be clearly marked on the way in. We spray paint, um, we would spray paint stuff on all of our cases. So for Pixelcore, we had this Pixelcore logo and we had, a, we had a stencil and we just spray painted on everything to make sure that people knew whose it was. Um, and then on a piece of paper, we would print out, this goes to room EJ134. This is one of whatever. And, and those are the kind of things that you want to think about as you go in. Um, you do, if you're, especially if you're loading in yourself, you want to think about how far it is from the dock to where you're going. So for instance, a good example is at the win in, in Vegas, the delta between where you load in and where you will be is um, oftentimes close to a mile. Like, like, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not underestimating it. It is, it is very close to a mile. It definitely feels like 10 if you didn't put everything on rollers. And so, so you, um, you have a whole crew, but you, that means you have to mark the time. How much, how long is it going to take you? You're going to have to add 30 minutes to the time just to get from where you're going to where you're, you know, to, to the location. So those are the kind of things that you want to think about. Also consider that, um, people will make decisions about your production based on how you load in. 
And I know that that's a that seems like an odd thing to to think about, but um, they are going to decide that you know what you're doing based on um, the quality of your load in. So when you're talking to them ahead of time, when you're figuring out how you're going to get in, when you're talking about like what the rules are, when you're talking about how you know um, uh, the you know that the all of those questions that you have, the management that you have, the tightness in which you arrive, all of those things, and then the quality of literally the cases that you have. We had a guy come in one time for a pretty high-end event, and he had everything all kind of bundled up into a piece of luggage. You know, like it was like a like a travel luggage, and then he opened it up, and it's got all this gunk of all these cables, and they're not wrapped properly and everything else. You know, no one no one will respect you after that. <laughs> like they'll, they'll think that you're, you don't know it. Especially, you can do that if you're like 22 years old, but if you're like in your 30s or 40s and you come in with a, with a uh, you know, with a bag, you, you know, how you present yourself in all of those cases makes a difference, you know. And I, you know, I, I had a, um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I might have told this before, but, you know, I, I, we were at the White House and we were doing something and uh, the person came up to us and said, you're the, you know, this is, you're the best production company that's been here in the last 29 years. I was like, who was here 29 years ago? I was like thinking these are superstars. They're like, He's, I've only been here for 29 years. And so, um, uh, but I asked him, I said, he said, I just knew in our meeting, I, I knew when, I knew you guys were going to make this work really well. And I said, when did you know? Like, I'm just curious, like, what did I say that made it that he goes, you asked how many carpet squares you said, you said, we think that we'll need 55 carpet squares and should we bring those or will you? And, and he said, then I knew that you guys were paying attention you know, like to, to what, you know, to what you're doing. And, and so it's the details of asking those things. You don't want to ask too many things, but you do want to take care in what all of those look like. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you covered a lot of the high points there. One thing you should remember is if you're going into a hotel ballroom, a lot of times they will not let you bring any equipment through the lobby or through any of the, the normal human pathways into that ball, ballroom. You'll have to come in to the loading dock, up a service elevator if it's not on that ground floor, and uh, and through uh, an amazing winding series of uh, maze of corridors sometimes to get to the ballroom. So walk before you start moving any equipment, get off the truck, find the uh, banquet manager or whoever is in charge of the ballroom and walk from the loading dock up to the uh, door that takes you into the ballroom where you're setting up and uh, look at every corridor, every turn, because they will have carts stacked with old food trays and things on the corners and chairs stacked where it's going to be tight corners to make the corner. So make sure that all your large cases are going to be able to make it through the labyrinth of backstage corridors that you may have to travel through to get to the place that you're going to, as Alex said, especially in the, in the casino based uh, hotels in Vegas, where they have, you know, huge casinos that cover four blocks. A lot of times, you know, there's no loading dock near the place where you're taking your stuff in. So you have to travel a circuitous route and they don't want you traveling with the gamblers. You have to travel backstage with, you know, all the waiters and things that are hustling food around. So walk that route first, take a tape measure with you to measure any tight clearances and know the sizes of your cases. Yeah. And picking the size of your cases is important. We've definitely had people show up without, um, uh, without thinking about the size of their cases, and they just simply can't get them through the <laughs> through the door. Um, so, so that is, um, you know, and and typically, you know, we think of cases as um, uh, I think that we typically run at, you know, there's the case width, and then a little bit more. So the the rack width. So usually 24 inches is usually about what we're looking at. 
Uh, we try not to go much wider than that. And then you have to also think about the depth of the case. And usually 35 inches is about as deep as we'll go, uh, mostly because just you can't turn the corner you know, on a lot of those things otherwise. So um, it's definitely very important to kind of um, think, you know, think through those those processes. And again, that's why for a large event, you want to, as Courtney said, if you show up, you want to walk through it. For a large event where you're bringing a, a larger crew in, um, you want to think about it. And, you know, there, we bring a lot of, I load a lot of things in that you wouldn't normally load in. Like, for instance, I don't like, if I'm at a three-day event, I'm not going to use the house chairs. <laughs> so, so, so our truck is going to show up with nice uh, cushy chairs that we're going to use because, um, you know, it, it affects, you know, it may seem like overkill to bring 20 padded chairs, um, but it affects the effectiveness of my, it, it impacts the effectiveness of my team. You know, if they're sitting there moving their butts around all the time, trying to figure out like, you know, how to stay comfortable and they're uncomfortable, um, you know, the team comfort is really, really important. And, and so those are things that we really think about a lot. The other thing is, if you're going to make requests, you make them right when you show up. So we try to get there as early as they'll let us go in. Because if you come in, if you get stacked, you may say, oh, I can save some money if I don't, if I load in the day before instead of four days before. I'll try to load in four days before, even if it's a skeletal crew. And the reason for that is I want to mark my, <laughs> I want to protect my area. So um, when I, when we send a rider out of what we're going to do, um, I'm going to tell them exactly how much space I need, you know? And so I'm going to go, I need, you know, it's this space and I need this to be, you know, 30 feet by, you know, 40 feet or whatever. This is the space I expect it to be unencumbered without any um, support, support poles. Um, so I'll say that pretty clearly of this is the space that I want. And they'll tell us where that space is. And we're usually going to expect to have a little marker on it that says it's ours. Now, what I'm calculating, by the way, is that, you know, I have I have a table like tables like this. This is going to be a 30 inch um, and I'm going to I need three feet this way and two feet that way, you know, to make sure that I actually have it. I, you know, I have a whole thing about not being on L's, you know, and I and I'm pretty we've learned to be very specific about this. We'll lay out, you know, where we want power dropped and so on and so forth as we get ready for the load in. But I'll get there and almost to the inch, I'll sit there and make sure that I have what I asked for um, because the only time I can ask for it is when I is when I get there. <laughs> like after that, um, it's just, it, you know, there's too many cases. They're all wired together and it's over, you know, and now you're you're going to be stuck with whatever you um, whatever you figured out there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And when you're working in a multi-story building, like you're shooting in the penthouse of a, uh, you know, 30 story building. Never underestimate the amount of time it's going to take you to get that equipment from the loading dock up through an elevator. Uh, you know, uh, maybe sometimes just a small service elevator that only can hold one cart, maybe two carts at a time. If you've got a 40 footer out, out there and you've got to get all that equipment up to the top floor, it can take you an hour and a half to two hours just to move it yeah. up from the ground floor to the top floor. So bear in mind that you may be sharing that elevator with uh, the hotel that's one problem. And, uh, you know, so you got, it takes time to go up, uh, load each one, unload it, and then take it back down. And especially if you're planning on coming in and going out on the same day, uh, that is uh, definitely budget enough time to handle that transition from street level to high level. And be aware of your surroundings too. So as you go into higher end locations, they're going to have a different level of expectation of what you're going to do. For instance, um, you cannot take your own carts through the Four Seasons lobby. Ask me how I know. 
<laughs> so anyway, they, they do not appreciate that. Um, and and some someone will be very particular, come over and talk to you about it. Um, and so uh, if you have a smaller kit, you may use some of the luggage, you know, some of the uh, the uh, luggage stuff. If you're, if you're coming in with a handful of, of cases, they may allow you to do that. Um, but you want to talk about that ahead of time. You don't want to assume that they're going to do that. Um, and then the other thing that we, you know, for load-in is... Uh, there's a couple things that I would say about load into a location that is keep your cases away from the walls. So when when you open up a Pelican case, for instance, uh, when you open that that the case, the top of the case, it's going to swing out. You know, your Pelican case is typically here, and your your this is going to swing out. The distance between this and the wall should be about three feet. <laughs> you know, like you know, like it's just there. It can be as little as one foot but it should not be any closer than that. So when you open that case, when you swing it open, it should never, ever, ever touch the wall. And people have a tendency when they first start loading in is to put those cases, just to stack them like this, and then they open them, and then they whack them, and then this hits things and everything else. Just know that a lot of people that work at the venue will notice that. They'll notice that you're doing that. And if anything goes, they'll go back and check that wall, and then they'll send you a, check, uh, a bill. So, um, so be careful of you know how you interact. This also comes into... When you're in nice locations, you're going to pay attention to every corner that you're not going to hit. Um, when we load into really nice locations and there's a lot to load into, we're going to lay down cardboard flats. We're going to put padding across. You know, we actually run um, oftentimes paper or, or something thick all the way down um, the walls to make sure that no one's hitting anything and we're not bringing in dirt. We're not bringing in, you know, a lot of other things. And so depending on how nice the location is, really take a look at that. You want to get... If you can, you, that's part of why you want to load in from the dock. Is you don't have to worry as much, many, as much of that. It's mostly concrete. But, um, but you do want to think about those things as you, as you start to come in. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. All right. We start with TJ Worrell from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Do you give your team a planned 15-minute break when the trucks are empty? More than beverages. We do. The locals off, often act like this is not the norm. Uh, it depends on the, it depends. Um, generally, we try to take a break right after we've loaded in. Um, and I think that usually it's a natural break. We we usually, we load in and then we take lunch. <laughs> like usually like the cases are there. Uh, when, where that changes is if there is a, a tight turn. So if it's a tight turn, but very typically we will be at, um, we will definitely try to take a small break to figure out what needs to be done. It lets, lets everyone's mind settle. Usually they've moved a bunch of stuff. And, uh, but if, if we're in a same day load in, oftentimes, you know, it'll be 15 minutes is, is pretty common. Um, but it's, it, it usually, we move pretty quickly to start building, um, you know, to make that, to get that stuff up. But, but we definitely try to take the breaks as, as best we can, especially if it's a hard load in, uh, you're absolutely right that giving everybody a little bit of a break makes sense. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, especially if there's multiple trucks to unload. So sometimes some of these shows have, you know, five 40 footers to unload. You get them unload and staged. Do you want to unload the cases, roll them off the trucks and roll them to where they're going to be used or where they're going to be staged, wherever the stage manager tells you, uh, or the road, you know, the, the, um, traveling, uh, uh, stage hand that, that outlines and sets up everything every on every location. We'll tell you where to place each case and they're usually numbered and, and divided by lighting and musical instruments, et cetera. We roll them to where they're gonna where they're gonna work and then you can take a break once the trucks are all unloaded. Uh, so and often, usually and often, a break. 
And, and oftentimes we break people while we figure out where the cases are going to go you know, and, and, and where the tables are going to yeah. go. Um, you know, like we, we need a moment for everyone to walk away and let us do that. And typically, uh, a lot of times ours, it depends on, again, we try to build it around breaks. Oftentimes, if, especially if it's a union position, uh, we will build, try to build it around the union breaks that we already have. You know, so there's, a, you know, there might be a 30 minute break or it might be a one hour walk away or it might be whatever. And we try to kind of build those, build what we're doing around those to, so that we just fulfill all the needs that are required. Um, next question. From Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. Best packing advice for a DOP friend. If it doesn't have built in wheels, then it has to be able to go on something with wheels. Thoughts? Go to Courtney. Yes. And uh, a lot of there's a lot of custom made uh, carts designed specifically for camera use. Here's one designed for Steadicam. It's about 575. It's a mag liner, I think, with this second shelf. And it has these attachments that have a, like a spigot arm on it so you can rest your Steadicam. And a lot of them will have a, uh, a plate on the end, a flat plate uh, where you can slide the camera on or uh, mount a second head so that you can put the camera together out in the truck put it onto the cart all put together and then roll it into the location and you put your lens cases and everything on a cart below that. So they'll have three or four of these carts that are designed to, to carry everything they're going to need inside and anything they don't think they're going to need immediately. They usually leave on the truck because uh, they don't want to haul everything in. Uh, they haul in just what they think they're going to need at this particular location because you don't want to clog up the location with too many cases uh, that you're probably not going to even open. So leave the cases you don't think you're going to need in the truck. You can always send somebody back to get the case later. Uh, but the case it organizes the case you're going to use on a cart and make sure it can roll from room to room. Yeah, and, and if you um, look at, like, for instance, this is this is a, a basic load-in on our end. And so um, uh, you can see this is creative, was next to us, but, but we're down here and across. And... Um, the main thing is, is that oh, actually this is a creative system, but all of us are bringing in our own tables, our own chairs. Um, but you'll notice that for rollers, almost everything has rollers. Um, you know, like almost everything that we have will have some wheels on it. But we also think about how they go together. So when you first buy, start buying Pelican cases, for instance, you will buy those Pelican cases because this is the right size for this piece of equipment. Over time, you'll buy Pelican cases because they stack well together. <laughs> so, um, and what we what we learned was that we prefer um, 1650s. Uh, so the Pelican case 1650s are about the right size to, to be easy to move around, and they have rollers on them. We can get them through hotel rooms, um, you know, into hotel rooms if we need to. Uh, they have wheels on them with with, and they have something to pull out. We flip them on their back. We make sure that we we tend to put them on on our um, rollers upside down. And the reason that we do that typically is because they stack better. They won't slide around as much on the cart itself, and they 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 lock better together than right side up. Um, and so, um, and we use uh, for our carts, we use a, a company called Cartmaster with a K. Um, these are expensive carts; they're a thousand dollars each, but they will fold up into almost nothing, and you can check them. So we oftentimes, when we go to another country, we'll literally have two or three of those Cartmasters that will fold up. Um, you will start with rock and rollers, but after the third one breaks a wheel and or comes apart in the middle, you'll you'll move, move on to cart masters. I go ahead, Alex. Yeah, those wheels, are those what come with those cases or do you put those on there? And also, is there a specific size of wheel that you like to have as a, as a minimum? 
Yeah, I don't really, you know, I think that a lot of the sizes are pretty standard. I don't really think about it that hard. The um, uh, Cartmasters are, you know, I mean, not Cartmasters, um, the Pelican cases have their own wheels and they just, they're built into the into the case. So I'm not sure exactly what the, the larger Pelican cases all have wheels on them and some of the smaller ones do. Um, we don't think that much about it. Um, the casters that are built onto them, I, I'm sure that there is like a three inch diameter or two and a half inch diameter that's standard because we see them all the time. Um, one of the things that we see with some of the cases when they really build them into trucks is they'll have cavities in the top of the cases where the wheels can go into <laughs> so that when you're when you're setting them on top of each other, they kind of lock together. Um, so it just depends on how they're planning to use those cases to make that happen. So it, the standardization of that, again, I, I think they're two and a half or three inches, but I don't, I've never seen casters on a road case that were a different size, you know, to be honest. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, on anything that weighs about 50 to 75 pounds, you probably want three-inch casters or four-inch casters if you're going to go bigger. Because if you have to go over cables or something or over those, I don't know who invented it, and I, when I find it, I'm going to throttle that guy. These uh, The ADA prescribed bumpy things that are on every ramp for some reason, uh, that they are, are those yellow things that have the little you know half-inch high bumps, lots of bumps. Every time there's a little ramp to go up and down over a curb, it has all those little bumps. When you get a something with a two-inch caster and you hit those things, you're just stuck. It, you have to lift it up, I, I will bump it over that's, that stupid thing. Pretty... I hate those things. I hate those. <laughs> I know they 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 are they are uh, yeah a bit painful. Like and, and I was going to show you. Let's see if I can find this really quickly. Um, this is the kind of uh, this is from a. Um, let's see if I can. So. Um, when we're taking pictures of, for instance, this is uh, um, here's here's a dock, you know that we that we look at. So what I'm looking at here, and this is the, these are the photos that I. This is just for one load in. I'm looking at where, you know, how big is the dock, um, you know, how many, you know, the the little things that matter depending on what we're doing is. For in this case, I was looking at can I fit a broadcast truck in here? Um, you know, is that going to work because I've got all these pillars? Um, but also, you know, as I, as we go through it, you know, I'm looking at what the dock height, this is when we say dock height, this is usually what we're looking at here. Um, and also you want to see if the, if they have these, these little pieces here, this, basically this will go up and down a little bit and this little wing will flip over onto the, onto the truck if it's the right height. So here you can see, this is a, this is a dock height, right? It may not be perfectly the same dock height, but it can be, and this usually can raise up and down to form a ramp. You can That's what this is built for, and that's the controller for it. Um, but you're looking for that, like, you know, what is, you know, what's available to us, and um, and then also, you know, what does it take to, to schedule into into this kind of, um, this kind of load-in. So anyway, so that's, those are the kind of pictures we take a lot of when we're getting ready to to load into the back of a, of a large facility. Um, next question. From Michael Flotron, Portland, Oregon. Sometimes the venue itself isn't the hardest part. Do you have any horror stories loading in and out while in transit, like at a very small airport, for example? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about moving stuff in the past. Uh, you know, smaller airports tend to be um, a little bit, I have, I have many, um, many horror stories about getting equipment in and out of those. I once, uh, we, um, the hardest ones are things like, uh, in in Berlin, the customs is a floor up, and the and the elevator is very small, and so it's very hard. If you have a bunch of cases that need to be approved for Carnet, it's no like it's the only one I know of where the where the where they put the 
customs on a different floor. Um, and it is super annoying. And I broke my toe uh, dropping one of those cases while trying to get into that elevator. And um, it was a great event <laughs> to be having a broken toe. Um, and uh, uh, But I got great pictures from the hospital. Um, anyway, but the I got 360 pictures and, and, and a German nurse that thought, thought I was crazy taking pictures while, I'm, while she's working on my toe. Um, anyway, but... Um, uh, but the, uh, that is, you know, the other thing that I do a lot and a couple of us do is we take pictures of the carts. So I have lots and lots of cart pictures. Um, and the reason that I have those cart pictures is because I'm looking for, do they have a lip on the front? How long is it? Do I have attachment points? Because it will greatly affect how many cases I can put on the cart. Um, if I'm not now, I, I slowly move to just bringing my own cart. Then I don't have to think about it. So I have my own carts and we know that we can fit them all on our carts. But that's something that we do think about. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're traveling on airlines or on any commercial transport and you have multiple cases, we always I always label the cases uh, one of, you know, 12. Or, you know, you put a, a label on there that says case number one of 12, two of 12, three of 12. So, you know, when you get to your location, you know, there's supposed to be 12 cases. You can count them. And if there's one missing, you know which one's missing. So, uh, and then you have your carnet uh, uh, listed by which case number, uh, you know, what's in which case number. And that way, you know exactly what's missing when you get there. I've been in situations where you land and we didn't have a carnet and they suddenly seize, you know, a million and a half dollars worth of film equipment for uh, uh, customs import duties. And they will not let that equipment go until you pay the import duties, even though it's rental gear and it's going back out of the country in three weeks. Oh, no, you have to pay the import duties, which they hold on to until you leave the country. So make sure you have a lot of cash on hand when you arrive with a lot of equipment. And if you haven't are prearranged to uh, have a carnet to get it into the country uh, and back out of the country without having to pay import and export duties. Next question. Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri. Alex, will you tell us about your loading out experience with the Secret Service? I, I I don't know. I, I I must have talked about one at some point, but I don't know which one I talked about there. Um, you know, the, the big the big thing that I would say with loading in and loading out um, of of a lot of a, a venue like the White House is that you um, there's a lot of security. And you have to have a lot of time. It's going to take you a long time to get in and out. So you're going to show up really early um, to get in. The um, uh, We have, I, I might have pictures of this, um, but we have, uh, uh, you know, you we've, we grew up to a point where we were bringing trucks in. To do trucks, you really have to, they have to invest, they have to look at it offsite. Um, so they, there's, a, there's a location that will actually scan the truck that's not too far away. Um, and then, um, then they still have dogs go through it. And, um, and, then they, and then they still inspect it. And then you can pull the truck up and, and start to load in usually. Um, interesting things about uh, high profile locations like the White House is they don't want any logos on your truck. So you can have a U-Haul or something like that, but generally uh, unmarked trucks are what they prefer. They don't want a, a logo of your company in front of their building, you know, and so those are things to think about as as you start to think about through, through those things. But otherwise, you know, we loading in, loading out has always been, you know, um, for high security locations, you know that you're going to load in, you're going to build out, and then there's usually a big gap. Um, there's going to be a um, sweeps, what, what we call sweeps, and so the, the sweeps will take... Um, oftentimes two, three, four hours, um, depending on the size of the location. And sometimes they happen in, in waves. So like at a convention, like a Democratic or a Republican National Convention, both of which we worked on, 
um, you uh, Secret Service does it in this kind of chaotic wave where they clo- they start closing streets down, and so you just have to know when you have to get out. <laughs> you know, like, but it's like they're kind of crumpling the security zone until they get to a point where everybody's going through, and they've it all figured out, and they won't tell you anything about it or give you a lot of data because they don't want you to figure out how to get around it. And so they um, they do it a little bit. They make it a little confusing on purpose. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and with Secret Service uh, or any high security stuff, a lot of times they will do dog sweeps with uh, bomb sniffing dogs, and you have to unlock all your cases, and then they clear everybody from the room. Nobody can be in there. Then they come through with the dogs uh, and sweep and open up all the cases and look and you know look through all your stuff. Uh, and another thing I didn't mention uh, when putting stuff onto an airplane, since Lockerbie, whatever that bomb on the airplane that brought down that huge airliner. You cannot put uh, luggage onto an airplane or a case in the, if, that you're not flying on unless you're shipping at air freight. Uh, so if you've got four cases and you get delayed or you get hung up, your cases get there, uh, they can't go on that plane without a, a ticketed passenger riding inside. If you miss the plane but you check your luggage and then you get tied up at the bar or something, they will hold that plane and take your luggage off. Uh, they will not let that plane leave the leave the gate with luggage on it that doesn't have that person ticketed for that luggage on the plane itself. So bear that in mind, as it can create havoc. It also could get you back on the plane. I had a uh, we had one where there was a confu- there was confusion with uh, uh, I know it'll sound crazy, but the, uh, what was it? I think it's called. Um, uh, it's, it's a Brazilian airline or whatever, and it was a United thing. And and um, I had my brother and I were doing a shoot in Brazil, and we um, we couldn't get. They they said, "Oh, there's your, your your seats aren't on the plane." And I said, "I know my seats are on the plane." I called United. United's like, "I'm looking at the computer. Your seats are on the plane. There's nobody else in those those things." And they wouldn't let us on. And um, and I walked over and just told the person, "I said I need to get on that plane. I have two seats on there." And they and they said, "No, no, you don't have two seats." And I said, "Well, um, the." because I, I talked to United, he said, well, your bags are on the plane. And so I walked up and I said, my seat may not be on the plane, but my bags are on the plane. And I'm going to go talk to that that security person right there. And they're going to shut down your plane <laughs> to get my to get my bags off. Uh, if, if I'm not on the plane, um, then then my bag shouldn't be on the plane. And, and we were on the plane in 10 minutes. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, don't, I have no idea what happened, but it sorted itself out. Um, next question. Rob Collins from Kansas City, Missouri. What special or extra things need to be considered when loading into a field or outdoor event? Coverage. <laughs> a couple things. Uh, where are you? Um, like I, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but there was one in Las Vegas where I just said, you know, they showed us where we're going to load in. I said, well, where's our tent? And they're like, oh, you don't need a tent. It's Las Vegas. And I'm like, I need a tent. Like, I, you know, I need a 10 by 10 booth um, tent. And if I don't have one, I'm not going to load in. Or you can, you know, we can t- tell me if I need to bring one. And we were one of the only people with a tent and dogs and cats fell out of the water. I mean, water came out of the sky and destroyed. It was a, I remember seeing this giant Jijico that was, the water was like flowing out of the mixer. <laughs> you know, like it's so, so it was, it was a pretty rough, and our stuff was fine. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but so knowing that, um, also the big thing is a lot of um, cable runs and you're going to need, uh, sometimes you, you know, yellow jackets or something you pay a lot of attention to, like 
where are people going to walk? Do I need to put, you know, where do I put, yellow jackets are the, they're the big humps and they have channels going across them that you can open and close so that cars can roll over them, people can walk over them, so on and so forth. And are you going to be able to use yellow jackets? Do you have to do something that's more flat? Um, you know, do you have to go over the street? Those are all things that you have to pay attention to as you load in is to, is to know, you know, what your, what those are going to look like. Um, also just know what the surface is going to be like. So if you're outside, are you going to be able to roll, you know, in and out of those things? And where is your power coming from? And what is the quality of that power? Right? We were in, um, we were in uh, Cambodia in Badambang and um, the power at the field that we were building into was not clean. <laughs> and so then we had to very quickly figure out what, uh, what that's going to be like, of course, weather outside, you know, again, that same one in Badabang, we, um, it was 118 degrees. And so we couldn't turn the projectors on until six because they wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, operate at that temperature. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And if you're going to be shooting anywhere where there's sand or loose dirt, bear in mind that even carts with pretty good sized wheels may have difficulty traversing that, uh, so things with bicycle size wheels can traverse that stuff. But if you're shooting at the beach, you better make arrangements for a bunch of gators or something that can travel through sand to move that equipment around. Because if you've got lights that are on wheels or casters, you're not going to be able to move them in the sand. And once sand gets into the casters, it not only ruins them your day for that day, but it ruins them from every day after that because sand gets into the casters and it's very hard to clean all that sand out once it gets into casters. So bear in mind, if you're shooting at the beach, make sure that you have some type of desert dolly, something with large balloon tires that can go across sand to carry a large amount of weight. Otherwise, uh, look for the quads or the uh, gators that can haul your equipment in and out of the location because your, uh, your casters and your uh, wheeled carts are probably going to be useful. Yeah. And you know, yeah, definitely looking at what you have to travel over, um, you know, to get from one place to the other is uh, something that I think a lot of people, you know, miss <laughs> you know, as, they, as they work through those things. Um, and, and it's definitely worth uh, checking out. Next question. Tarlock Lopez Waterman from Brevard, North Carolina. Not all loading docks are equal. What's the number one worst the panel has encountered? Hmm. I'm not sure. You know, I think that the biggest problem that we have with loading docks is that often there'll be a handful of them that, that the dock height is much higher than we expected. Um, and there's only two of them. There's only two things and we're all of us are trying to load into it. So I think that docks with um, a limited number of entry points um, is is pretty painful because a lot of times a lot of stuff's going in and out. Docks that don't have ramps are painful because we just, you know, if, if we have to load something out of a car, um, you know, I think that's that's more of a, that's another that's another piece that's a bit problematic for us. I can't think of any I can't think of a specific dock that I that I didn't like. Um, you know, the ones that are I mean, the ones that keep all the trash in the dock are particularly pungent. So there was one in Denver. I, I know that every time I went to it, it was just like it just you know you, you literally just cleared your sinuses. It was so bad. Um, and I just I don't know how people worked there. Like it was like I didn't. There were people that worked there all day, and it was. It was really horrible. Um, I, I couldn't imagine your clothes wouldn't smell like it and everything else. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, some docks have these uh, hydraulic uh, levelers that, that lower the dock down to a different level uh, as your vehicle. But the problem is now it's 
a foot lower, you have to roll the stuff onto that little elevator and then go up four inches or whatever the difference is. So that takes a lot of time because you got to be sending that little lift dock that's part of the dock up and down. Or if you have a lift gate that's, you know, that's higher than the dock, you can bring the, use the lift gate to go down and up. But ramps come in very handy. And uh, I know a lot of grips always carry uh, ramps for the dolly uh, that they can go up the, you know, one or two step up, uh, one or two steps up and two steps down without having, once you're trying to push that 600 pound dolly, it takes four guys to lift it. So you want to have some ramps. Yeah. And here's a couple of examples. Like I told you, I take a lot of pictures of these. Like this is a good, this is a good one. This is a good uh, roller because it doesn't have a front lip. This is a bad one. <laughs> like, like someone, you see this, this is like when we, when we see this, we're like, oh, this is going to be not good, you know, so that we can, cause we can't have anything hang over it. Um, so that really limits what we can do. This is kind of us. Um, this is using, uh, you know, loading, you know, with someone there. These are, this is what I do with my tickets. That's a set. These are all of our Pelican cases. Um, so, so that, you know, we end up with, you end up with, you know, a large collection. I take pictures of this to remind people of how people, I took a video of this to remind people how people are going to handle our cases, which is mostly they're going to throw them around. Uh, here you can see our, um, this is a, a small kit um, that we might send out. And, um, of course, we have, this is loading into the airport, but we would load into the venue in the same way. But these are these rock and roll carters. We're strapping these down so that we can get them, you know, so they're not going to be flying around. Uh, you can see that they're all flipped upside down. Um, you know, we have what's in each one of them, you know, here. Um, and typically, you'll see this little strip here is the weight. Um, we find that if, uh, you know, in places that require weight, if you have like three, if you have weights on all of them, and they'll weigh the first two or three and see that, oh, they're you know, they, they're accurate and then they don't weigh the rest of them because it's pain. It takes too much time. Uh, next question. From TJ Worrell in Minneapolis. What specifically do you look at regarding load in, load out when you're doing your initial on-site survey? Um, the primary thing we're looking for is, is it a different floor? How do we get to that floor? Are there any bumps? Uh, are we going to have access to the dock? Uh, if not, what, what is the elevator? If I'm doing an early load in, what time is there someone there and do I need to, and whose phone number is it? <laughs> you know, because we've had ones where we, we got there at 4 a.m. and there was a manager that was supposed to, you know, meet us there. And, you know, we're calling people trying to find that person um, because it's a hard load in, um, you know, for a same day event and losing an hour and a half would be, you know, we did have that phone number and we did get a hold of them and they did show up at 430. Um, but otherwise, we would have been waiting there until 730 in the morning and that would have thumped the event. You know, so so understanding, you know, who's in the who's contacted, is it normally opened? Uh, who do I talk to? Um, what are the rules of engagement? Um, those types of things are all are all the kind of things that we look for. Um, elevators, size of elevators, is the elevator padded or armored? Um, so if it's, if it's not, then I have to pay attention to, you know, how we're, what we're, we might bring some moving blankets that we throw around things, especially in a nice elevator. Um, whereas if, if they're going to give us a, uh, industri you know, one of the freight elevators that, or an armored elevator or a padded elevator, um, we feel a little bit more comfortable on the load in. Um, next question. Chad Lafarge from Columbus, Missouri and here on the office hours backend crew, how important are and when and how do you deploy witness cams to protect your gear and site? At some locations, we do it all the time. So um, a good example is uh, Moscone. Um, Moscone is kind of known for things walking away. Uh, or it was when I was doing a lot of work down there. And so we would have six to eight cameras. Um, these are all, uh, and they're all 
the way that, that we cross them, it would be very hard to get to the booth or get to any of the cameras. And they're all kind of, a lot of them were kind of hidden as well, but they're all looking at each other as well as the gear. So it'd be very hard to get rid of all of them at the same time. You'd have to be very focused on on turning them all off um, without us seeing you from another camera. Um, and so um, so we had a lot of cameras on, on, on those things. Another thing that we've started to do is um, on a lot of gear and a lot of uh, cases, we're dropping air tags. So we have air tags into a, a lot of things now. Um, so if someone walked away with it, we'd probably know pretty quickly. Now, next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and the Office Hours crew. What items might you purchase locally rather than go through the effort and expense of transporting to the venue? What adjustments to production allow for disposable or consumable items that won't need to be recovered after the event? Um, You know, a lot of times we just look at how much space we have and what the load-in is. Um, We did finally get to a point where we found printers that we could pack. We have kind of an office kit that is its own case that we'd open up and we had little printers. But for a while, we considered printers kind of a disposable thing. We'd buy them when we got there and and just leave them behind because it was just another thing we had to ship. Um, um, but we've, you know, we kind of, and we didn't throw them away. We would just give them to somebody like, hey, do you need a printer? <laughs> Here's one. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, those are the kind of things, um, you know, we uh, will rent some things, but it, it, you know, we do find it to be difficult to to rent everything because you just never know where it's been. You know, Courtney. Yeah, these days, uh, you used to be able to go to a, a venue and, and you know, you bring everything that you think you're going to need, but uh, invariably there's something that you didn't get packed or, you know, broke or you need a replacement. Back when there were Radio Shacks and Fry's Electronics where you could send somebody out to Radio Shack to buy up all the adapters, uh, you could do that. But now, you know, you, you're not going to be able to order them from Amazon and have them delivered on site. Maybe you can if there's yeah. some in town. But it, I usually travel with everything that I know I'm going to need, including tape. Um, you know, make sure you have gaffer tape because when you land, people are going, gaffer tape, what is that? You yeah. Know? yeah, The um, I will freely lend things to other crews um, with no questions asked as they come through. If I don't, If I don't think I need that thing, I will never ask for anything. Like just you know, like it's it's one more step towards the front of the bus in the corporate world. Um, Akihabara, by the way, if you're in Tokyo, Akihabara, not the not big camera, but the there's these little underground paths of all the stuff, and you can find anything that you need, including the soldering irons that you would need to put it together. Um, uh, next question, Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri. Alex, will you tell us about the loading out while the presidential debate? was live. Oh, I'll say this really quickly. Um, in the Romney-Obama debate in Denver, uh, if you do allow, if you do a search, you may find still some videos floating around about it. There were a lot of videos the week of it. Uh, there was a loud bang um, during that debate. Um, and I, I think it's over 10 years, so I think I can talk about it. But there was a lot of conspiracy theories of someone being shot or some kind of whatever that all popped up on the internet. But it was a 1650 rolling over a metal yellow jacket right at the door where all the power goes into the room. Um, and I might know why. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, you got to be careful about <laughs> once the event, I will admit I'm very resistant to loading uh, in and out during an event during, because of that event itself, um, where I'll just go do something else until the event's done. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to, I don't, you know, you know, you never know. And you tend to not want to load in and load out during an event because you might trip over a cable or, or run over a yellow jacket and uh, make a lot of noise. And so um, I've just decided that I can just wait. Um, next question. 
from Talak Lopez Waterman, Brevard, North Carolina. I wish all trucks had e-track and logistics bars. What is your favorite logistics company for the entertainment industry? What other must-haves do you have for trucks and trucking? Yeah, this is, um, I think this is us prepping for, um, um, uh, this is, it says do not tip and it's upside down. I think that's why we took a picture of it. Um, but, but typically, um, this is, uh, you know, we use a rocket for most of the stuff that we send. Um, and they manage all of the, uh, they manage all the shipping for us. Um, it's a little more expensive, but it always shows up on time anywhere in the world. Um, when, when you're talking about e-track, this is my old truck, um, that we used for this. And so, and I, I really miss this truck. Um, anyway, um, this is a, a Ford Transit that's at the full height and full length, and this is E-Track here. And so this is all of our E-Track. Um, and what you do is as you start to, to, to do this, you build your cases out and you latch it at each level. And the reason you do that is because otherwise it's dangerous. <laughs> like you want to pull it all together and each at each round of those and cinch them all to the thing. And the E-Track lets you just slide something in. You're not trying to wrap around things. You just snap it into the E-Track and you, you you tug it tight and you keep on doing that layer by layer by layer. Otherwise, things can get out. They'll all start going one direction or they'll go another direction forward and back and you'll flip, you'll flip your truck. And we've seen people do it. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana. Should you be AC electricity free during load in, load out, batteries only, or is electricity okay to use if planned for? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we usually, I mean, usually what, what I do is I load all the hard stuff in and then we start setting everything up and we lay everything out. Um, and, and I usually wire everything without power and then we power everything up slowly. Um, we do it kind of in layers, um, in that, in that area. I don't think I do it to protect anything other than it's just the, it's the order in which we tend to build. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I always carry one of those plug-in testers that, you know, a three-pronged tester that'll you just plug into any normal U.S. Uh, socket out there, and you can make you can get them for European sockets as well. And it gives you the three LEDs that tell you if you've got your hot neutral wired correctly, and if the ground is good. Uh, and it'll also has a button on it to test if you've got uh, ground fault interrupter in built in. Always carry one of those because you'd be amazed at the number of old houses or something you go to and they've wired it up themselves and the hot and the neutral are reversed and you're going to blow equipment up. If you plug one in, you know, something into one outlet here and another outlet there and they touch the cases together, you can electrocute people or fry things. So I always carry one of those and a voltmeter is another nice thing to have uh, to check the voltage uh, before you plug anything in because who knows, they may be on some strange um, you know, 220 voltage uh, with wired to the wrong connectors, which happens. Next question. TJ Worrell from Minneapolis is back. Do you have a formula for the number of hands in a given department based on show size? Most of the events I'm involved with are smaller than 2000 attendees. I'm not sure how to scale for a larger event. I realize here's an office hours uh, <laughs> Mickeyism. It depends. Yeah, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a function of of how many people are in the event, as into what needs to get done for the event. So we build everything based on the needs. So we do. Do we need an A one? Do we need an A two? Do we? Need, how many A twos do we need? Uh, do we need coordinators? Uh, but we back up and we try to design the entire event. 
And then as we think through that entire event of all the things that are necessary, we then back into, well, I'm going to need one of these, you know, this and how many days. So we may have, I'm, I may decide that I need um, a, a lead camera for four days, but the act, the rest of the camera operators for two days. Um, and, and all that adds up to money. <laughs> so, so we really think about who needs to be there. Um, the one thing that I'm, that I definitely throw at problems are PAs and utilities. Um, it, it's, I, I find it amazing that people will, the first thing they'll cut is, a, you, you know, their PAs. And they're the least, the least expensive labor part. And it's like the oil that runs the whole system. And so the thing is, is that, um, every, you know, PAs magnify everybody's time because otherwise you have your A1 running around for coffee or you have your A1 doing something that they shouldn't be, you know, that they, you know, paying them a lot of money um, to do something. And so you never go, I never go into an event without at least a couple PAs or at least one <laughs> like that's going to do stuff uh, because you just find yourself doing things in people that are really expensive that cost a lot per hour doing things that a PA could do. Um, so that's not the place that we cut. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael is asking, how do you manage cable conduit routing if your show requires supplemental power and or cooling? Do you load those elements in first? We usually do them last. Um, you know, like usually all of our hardware is down before we lay out the power because the power usually has to go, power and signal usually has to go around the cases and start laying them out ahead of time. Um, now, having large runs, if you're, especially if you're asking something from the venue, um, then you're going to request those and hope that they're there when you get there. Um, oftentimes we've spent an hour or two waiting for the power, but that's also why we bring our signal and our cases, we load in and we start signaling everything up. And the reason that power comes last, as I mentioned before, is oftentimes we're waiting for power from the venue. You know, there's a bunch of people and they're running a bunch of power around. And so that's the last thing we worry about. We're self-contained until, until we need power. Um, next question. From Tulak Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina, advancing a show is vital. Paperwork and a plan can make or break you. What checklist items do you have for advancing a show to ensure smooth load in and load out? I mean, the big thing is, you know, uh, really knowing who the points of contact are, what their phone number or texts or emails are, how they'd prefer to do it, schedules of, of when your load-in is, um, an agreed schedule for with the venue and with other, with your event partner and everything else. If you're in a loading dock, you need, but all that stuff should be something that you send out as a PDF, but that you always print. And the reason you always print it is if you run out of battery, suddenly you, you don't have anything. <laughs> Not that that's ever happened to me. And so, um, so I print all those things out. I make sure that I have them all. Um, but, and then um, the other things that we print out are, you know, where is our location? Exactly where is our location? Like, where is the square that we are going into? Not like w that we're in the loading dock. What dock number? Where are we going? You know, how are we doing that? If we're loading into a room, exactly where in that room are we loading into? Um, and we want to know what that is. We want a layout of everything. So here's where all the tables are going to go. Here's where all the things are going to go. Uh, usually we have a wiring diagram. You know, those are the kind of things that, and generally all of those are both electronically and, uh, and printed for the folks that are using it. Go ahead, Courtney. And a neat thing to have if you've got uh, if you've got a traveling show that's on a forty foot uh, semi or something, uh, uh, or, a tr or a, even if it's just a panel truck, is to get your whiteboard, uh, set it vertically, and print out a list of all the cases that are on that truck that go on that truck, and then two columns on the truck and in the venue. And every time uh, every time you pull something off the truck, 
you erase the on the truck and put a little check mark in the venue. And that way you can look at that whiteboard coming in or going out of the truck and you know whether that case is on the truck or has been taken in. And that way, you know, you've got every case back on the truck before it departs. Uh, if all the check marks are on, on the truck, uh, you know, what cases have been left back in the venue. So, uh, uh, a centrally located whiteboard that anybody can look at. If you can, you can do that with a printed out schedule, but then that's got to be on somebody's clipboard somewhere and somebody's got to be responsible for it. But if you put it on a whiteboard on the inside, uh, uh, just inside the truck or in the door of the truck, then anybody who takes anything off the truck can update the list and everybody else knows about it when they go to the truck. And I think that things like AirTags or some industrial version of those is going to keep on revolutionizing what we're doing here where we know where everything is. <laughs> we just know where the cases are. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is asking, I, I remember seeing a video of a concert on a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. Wouldn't load in, load out, and power supply be challenging on a warship? 100%. <laughs> like that, that, that takes a lot of coordination and planning. Go ahead, Courtney. I did a commercial shoot on a launch ship uh, where I had to bring in lots of computers and screens and big screens and things. And uh, it's parked a dockside. It's a destroyer size ship, uh, but everything has to go on and off by crane. So yeah. you can't load it up a gangplank or anything. Nope. The crane, you have to load it onto a pallet. The crane has to lift it up to the deck and then you got to take it off the pallet on the deck and, comes down for another one. So it takes a long time to load onto a ship a lot of times because everything has to come in in and off, on and off with cranes. And bear in mind, they're steel, and you can't just, you know, find a little hole somewhere to run some cables because they're usually watertight doors, and a lot of times they want to close those doors. So you can't run cables through the watertight doors. It's very problematic shooting on a ship, especially one that has, uh, you know, a submarine or anything with watertight doors on it. Yeah. Next question. From Tarlock Lopez Waterman from Reverd, North Carolina, what do you use for power distribution? Do you tie into a 300 amp company switch or use the venue's distribution? The vast majority of the time we end up with uh, the, the company, I mean, the, wherever we're at at a venue is going to have the power distribution for us and they're going to deliver it to us. But we do have those conversations, um, especially if it's a high profile event. Um, we're oftentimes bringing generators in um, for uh, our our space. If they're not providing them, we're providing them. Um, we want to have, you know, shore power as well as generator power. Um, and that's a pretty common thing, especially as our as our productions get bigger. For our smaller productions, um, UPSs are something that are a must. Um, but again, a lot of times the smaller ones, we're really dealing with Edison from the, from the venue. Um, whereas, and that might be delivered by them or it might be in the walls. Um, and then, um, but for the larger events, we're usually trying to find out what you know, we, we're hoping that they're going to have two sets of power, uh, two independent power. Large convention centers are going to be able to give you that. Um, and uh, But then otherwise, we're bringing in our own generators that might be small or as big as I think the largest ones we've had is a couple uh, container-sized cat generators to run, you know, broadcast trucks and stuff like that. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael, do you ever collect a deposit from the client to ensure that the client-provided loaders are available for both load-in and load-out? I avoid other people loading my gear as much as possible. <laughs> so so um, usually uh, now I will hire utilities sometimes, depending on the complexity of it, I'll hire 
part of the production is hiring four people for the beginning and end or six people or whatever it is to bring in and set up for the first couple hours and then and then they take the rest of, most of the day off and come back in the afternoon or whatever. Um, so having hiring people, I, you know, we still do occasionally need to use our crew to, to load in and out. Um, for the larger events that I work on, we try to avoid having even the crew do much of the load in, load out. Uh, we're, we're, we slow, but it depends on the on the budget, of course. Go ahead, Courtney. And if it's a union venue, you need to look ahead to see what uh, local is in uh, has control of that venue, and request the number of stagehands that you're going to need to pick up from that local, and make sure they're going to be there for the load in and the load out, and. Uh, be careful because if it's a single day load in, load out, if you keep those guys on the clock from load in to load out, the same guys, you're going to be paying a lot of overtime. So uh, bear that in mind uh, when you're picking up a local hands, uh, stage hands at it's, each individual venue. Depends on it's actually one of the one of the things that's it's a real convenience of the union is that if it's all shared, a lot of times you walk into a convention center, you're booking time. I need two hours of time to get in things in and out. You're not paying for a, someone for the whole day. You get a group of teamsters or a group of local 16 or whatever for that window of time and then they go do something else because they're connected to the overall production not to you specifically so a lot of times if you if, if you work that out it's, it can be to your advantage all right well that's good it's good I, I wasn't sure i at first i was like i don't know i i go into these these ones like the gaff tape one and like this one i was like i don't know if we're going to be able to talk for an hour about this but we did um, uh, great, uh, great questions from the producers. Thank you so much for guiding this uh, conversation and making sure that you extracted what you needed from us. Uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And I uh, appreciate uh, your contribution to everyone here. Um, also, if you're interested in being a panelist, uh, go ahead and reach out to Josh uh, or me, and uh, we'll, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of growing the panel group. So, um, so let us know about that. And thank you to the incredible team on the back end, the development team that's making the software better every single week. Um, the the Obviously, the management teams that are making sure we have second hours, making sure that we have people to, in here, there, and everywhere. Um, you know, that's incredible work there, as well as the team that's actually cutting this show every day. Uh, we really appreciate all of your uh, contribution. Uh, we traveled um, uh, 85,000 miles, 138,000 kilometers, and that is 680 mil million, million bananas for scale. All right, let's jump into After Hours. Didn't take you to load in all those bananas. So many bananas. It's like truckloads and truckloads of bananas.